just past 7 o'clock and another big show on tap for you tonight. Love Monday nights here on the True Oldies channel. It's time for Ira on Sports. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira not in studio with us. He's been doing his thing, though, all over the West Coast this week. A lot to talk about with you, Ira. Um, first and foremost, we do have a massive guest, and we'll talk about that in one second. But where are you now, and where have you been? I'm in Los Angeles, and I was at the Utah-USC football game on Friday night. And yesterday, I, was, I flew up to San Francisco, uh, actually Santa Clara, to see the Steelers uh, drop to 0-3 against the San Francisco, the 3-0 San Francisco 49ers. Yeah, and uh, Levi Stadium was a, a new one. Well, you know, you, you, you've only got a few left that you haven't been to, and I, I think that the uh, report card on uh, on them is going to be really good. So we'll get to that in just a little bit here on Ira on Sports, but we got to hurry because we're just about seven minutes away from having Ira, one of the most dynamic players I've ever seen in my life, Braylon Edwards, joining us here on Ira on Sports. If we're not familiar with Braylon Edwards, you want to tell us a little bit about him? Oh, he's just one of the finest college football players ever. Uh, he was the uh, one that Fred Blitzkrieg offered as the best wide receiver in the country, and he had, was the only wide receiver, one of the only four players to have a thousand receiving yards three years in a row. Uh, he played in the NFL for a number of teams, including the Browns, the Jets, the Niners, the Seahawks, and made the Pro Bowl in 2007. So he's one a prolific college wide receiver, a phenomenal pro wide receiver, and we're excited to have him on. He has a book uh, called Doing It My Way, uh, and it'll be great to have him on and talk to him about everything from Antonio Brown to his book to uh, his issues with Jim Harbaugh in Michigan. That it's an exciting interview. Yeah, it's a very timely uh, for what's going on in the NFL, you know, based off his position, also Michigan. So that's going to be great. But we don't have much time to dilly dally, Ira. So let's talk about. Let's go back to um, to your game, USC and Utah, and tell us about how this went down. Well, it's a Friday night game, and that was they, very strange that they started to play football on Friday nights because, college, because, of course, high school football has Friday nights. So it was a late-arriving crowd at the Coliseum. And I've been to Coliseum before, not for a USC game. Uh, I was there for the football for the Rams game. But this is, of course, one of the historic uh, arenas, uh, stadiums in the world. Uh, it was two Olympics, 32 and 84, uh, 77,000 seats. They just spent $300 million and renovated it. It looks amazing with the renovations. It's pretty cool. But everything is Trojan. It is, when you go to a, a USC game, it is great to see there. There's a horse running there, the traveler that goes through, the band with all everything. And then they put all the jerseys of the Heisman Trophy winners, including O.J. Simpson's, in the, uh, around the stands on the one side. And they're gigantic. I mean, there must be 10, 100 times what a normal jersey size would be. Uh, and it's great. And everywhere you go in the stadium, it says, we're 34 bowl victories, 44 College Football Hall of Fame numbers, 11 national championships, six Heisman Trophy winners, 16 Pro Football Hall of Fame. It's like, we have this tradition, everything. So it was pretty cool about, about just being there, and, and the weather was perfect, uh, and it was just great. It, actually, Reggie Bush was there for the first time ever to get a special waiver from the NCAAs to come back for the game because of the probation he was put on years ago. Where it actually took the only person of his Heisman Trophy winner taken away from him, and he came back, and he was at the game with Matt Leinard, uh, and Utah came into the game uh, as a five-point favorite. Uh, the USC just lost to BYU, and it seems like a lot of people in the game wanted Clay Helton, the coach of uh, USC fired. He's been there for four years. Lynn Swan, the athletic director, was just removed, and they felt that since he got fired or not, however, that uh, now the position could open. And Urban Meyer was broadcasting the game. So there was a rumor was, oh, I don't think Urban Meyer will ever take this job. I don't think Urban Meyer's coaching again, <laughs> let alone at USC. But he was there at the game, Reggie Bush, Matt Liner. It was pretty exciting in terms of the atmosphere before the game. Yeah, and this is something that, even with just the Reggie Bush you know, thing being in the building, this was definitely a, a special night. I'm glad you got to be there. Let's talk about the game itself, Ira. How'd it go down? Well, um, Slovis, who was the star freshman for USC quarterback, uh, he's actually the second string because the, the starter got hurt in the last game. He, um, he, he got hurt on the second play of the game. And Utah's Zach Moss, who's their star running back, he got hurt in like, the second play of the game. And Matt Fink, who is their third-string quarterback, came out of nowhere and threw for 351 yards, played a great game. Uh, Michael Pittman, Jr. is the wide receiver. And Amon St. Brown, these two wide receivers for USC are probably going to play in the NFL. I mean, they were – Pittman had 10 catches for 232 yards. His hands were amazing. He is so fast, so quick, so elusive, just amazed at how, how well he played. And uh, it, was, it was one of those games where USC really did not control the time possession. USC really did not do much in terms of the overall side of the game. But – 
They made the big plays. Utah controlled the game. Tyrone Huntley, their quarterback, had 210 yards passing, 60 yards rushing, and just a superstar player. But uh, it was like every time you, you, Utah would go down the field, they'd fumble, uh, and then USC would just have these, uh, have these big plays, uh, whether to, to, to St. Brown or to, um, or to Pittman. But uh, after, after halftime, uh, they, uh, they, 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 they actually won the game for USC with a punt. Um, they pinned Utah deep back in, into like on the two yard line. Utah got a safety, and then they uh, and then and then they were able to hold on. And it was it was interesting when USC scored the five the touchdown to make it thirty to twenty. Uh, the, they were celebrating when Reggie Bush and Matt Liner were there. So Reggie Bush was like high fiving uh, Pittman, and then <laughs> they uh, then they gave him an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. So even Reggie Bush got in trouble, and he's not even playing there at the game. But it was uh, it was a very it was like one of those games where Utah just dominated the game. But USC made these long passes, and Matt Fink came out of nowhere and played great, and a, and a big big upset and a big win for USC. What do you think? You know, this matters as far as um, as far as the Pac-12 is concerned because this. Is- is not the same conference that we've seen, you know, for years and years. Well, for years and years, it was because USC dominated. USC was as national champions as they have eleven national championships, and then Oregon came and was a superstar team in Washington lately. But in the last five years of the cultural playoffs, the Pac-12 has only made it twice. And now that Utah was undefeated, they lost. And Oregon, um, uh, Oregon had lost to Auburn earlier in the year. Now they beat uh, Stanford, but they weren't really that impressive. Justin Herbert, I watched him in the whole game on Saturday, so I watched like a zillion football games on Saturday. Was just not impressed with Oregon. And then Arizona State under Herm Edwards was undefeated, but Colorado beat them. Uh, and Washington uh, had lost to Cal earlier there, so they have a loss. And the, the, the Cal had a big win against Mississippi, so they were the team with a with a big win. But they already they're, they're the only team that is undefeated, which is and they weren't even supposed to be ranked, of course, going into the year. But uh, and then the final game of the season was UCLA played Washington State, and it was like the game ended even in the West Coast around one in the morning. Uh, USC UCLA was a 14-point favorite. They were three and zero. UCLA was zero and three. 49-17 in the third quarter, so up by 32 points. The L.A. Times came out and said, game over, that UCLA lost, it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. They ended up, UCLA scored seven touchdowns on eight possessions. Washington State had four fumbles in, like, the last part of the game. It was like Washington State would fumble, UCLA would score a touchdown. Washington State would fumble. And then even when Washington State was able to take the lead, UCLA went all the way down. They took the lead back. So it was 63-60. UCLA goes all the way down to the 26 with two minutes to go. They can't convert on fourth down. Washington State gets the ball back, and they fumble again. <laughs> and then UCLA went and scored. Um, Washington State's quarterback, Anthony Gordon, uh, he's the, another senior transfer. You saw the NFL with Luke Falk, uh, played for the Jets. Gabe Minshew played for Jacksonville. Anthony Gordon is one of those seniors, what Mike Leach is doing, senior transfers. He threw for 570 yards, nine touchdowns, and two interceptions. Nine touchdowns. The record is 11 for, the, for all time in NCAA. And UCLA quarterback, uh, Dorian Thompson-Robinson, 507 yards and five touchdowns. But really one of the craziest games in terms of seeing Washington State just fumble after fumble after fumble. And the, after all this is all said and done, the problem with the Pac-12 is that they only have Cal's the only team that's undefeated. And, I'm gonna, and you would think that uh, if the SEC schools have a loss and the, either the Big Ten team has a loss, they're going to get in. It's, it, again, the Pac-12 is going to be just totally eliminated from any conversation about being in, in, the, uh, bold, in the playoffs. It's seven sixteen. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. It's time to bring in Braylon Edwards, a college and pro wide receiver legend. He's the author of Doing It My Way, My Outspoken Life as a Michigan Wolverine, NFL receiver, and beyond. You can pick up an autographed copy now at BraylonEdwards1.com. Follow him on Twitter, official Braylon. Braylon, thank you so much for uh, joining us here today. It's great to talk to you, man. You were like the most explosive player I'd ever seen at Michigan, and it was really just something that got me into them and college football in general when I was younger. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for those kind words. Yeah, no, um, Ira, what do you have for Braylon? Uh, Braylon, um, once again, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Um, your book, Doing It My Way, is really just your biography of, of everything of, of your career. And, but you really started out in terms of it was funny that you didn't really start playing football until you're 12 years old. Um, talk about how you've spent like all your dad was an NFL football player, went to Michigan, but you spent years like begging him to play, begging to play, and they wouldn't let you play, and then you finally got your chance when you were 12. 
Yeah, my dad was very uh, interested in me doing other other sports, trying to learn like you know the other cultures of sports, getting into other things, seeing if I would if I had a natural fit to do other things versus just forcing me to play you know a sport he played kind of because he played it. So, you know, I think the first sport I played was I played tennis, uh, I played soccer, and you know, played baseball. I played baseball up until uh, my junior high school, ran track. So it's just like always trying to beg my father, always trying to beg my father. You know, and I always see like forms, you know, for a new league, and I'm always thinking, I hope it's football this time, and you know, here it is, baseball. Or I see forms next year, and it's you know, it's golf or it's tennis. So finally, you know, um, I put some put applied some good pressure to my stepmother, and uh, she she in turn applied the the pressure on my father, and he uh, he allowed me to play when I was twelve. So and you and you talked in your book a lot about your relationship with your father and your mother. Now they were they were divorced, but they you actually were played very much a role in terms of they lived like really close to each other. So each you went to each one of them, and your dad trained you like you never anyone has ever trained in terms of getting you into the, this peak physical condition. So talk about sort of your relationship with your dad and your mom in terms of what they both had impact into into making you one of the greatest wide receivers of all time. Yeah, uh, my parents separated when I was young. Um, and, you know, my dad did everything to stay close to me, you know, since so I didn't, he's not an absentee father by any means, you know, wherever we stayed, he always stayed a block over or two blocks over. He always made sure he stayed right around me. When we moved to Georgia when I was uh, six, you know, I I stayed, I spent the summers in Detroit with my dad. So I still would, you know, spend that end of May, you know, all the way through August. So I still got that time to be with my dad. So we were, you know, we were very close like that. But you know, my, our relationship was kind of built and based on sports. You know, I think that's just a product of the way in which he grew up. So, you know, I wanted to go overboard, uh, above and beyond in terms of sports. I always tried to make sure I was very successful, uh, no matter what grade or year it was or what sport I was playing, because I felt as though that was our bond. And I felt like that that was our that was our chemistry. You know, it was through sports. So I think that's how our our relationship was formed. And I think for years that's what I thought our relationship was. But you know, you get older in life, you start asking questions. You become grown yourself. You become you know a man, a father, etc. And then you start to ask questions and say things. And then you guys open up the lines of communication. So you know, my father and I, are, you know, in a, in a great place, probably the best place we've ever been in over the past uh, six or seven years. But it just took me asking that question and then obviously you know, i guess he was waiting for it you know and you know how those things work with with men and their fathers man so uh definitely an interesting relationship but nonetheless man definitely full of love i never never didn't see love or uh or presence and then obviously my mother i apologize my mother is my everything man she's uh She's a disciplinarian. She's the best friend. She's uh, the birds and the bees conversation kind of came, came from her. I think my father was a little embarrassed when he was younger. So uh, my mother, man, I just that's how we rock, man. She's uh, my manager, uh, the consultant between my financial people, my agents, et cetera. Like she's a uh, she's she's a good, the bad, and ugly, man. You know, it's like the Clint Eastwood movie. So you go. So you. Uh... Your dad went to Michigan, so you grew up wanting to play at Michigan, wanting to go to Michigan, growing up in Detroit and playing football there in the Detroit area. So you get to Michigan as, as a freshman, and you're playing for Lloyd Carr, and he wasn't, from the book, he isn't like one of those warm and cuddly coaches, it appears like. And you had a tough time that freshman year in terms of like getting, just getting used to that whole atmosphere, the whole environment at Michigan. What was it? His quote was, if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. And if you're late, you're forgotten. <laughs> That that was him in a nutshell, man, and it was funny because I had um, I had forgotten that quote for a while until uh, 2017 at the Chad Tuff Gala, which is uh, his son um, Jason Carr and his wife Tammy Carr. They lost their son Chad, uh, if you guys remember, some years back, and uh, to cancer. To you know, and they have they have a big gala they do every year now. Jim Harbaugh's on the coach Harbaugh's on the board. Uh, for it, but he was honored at that for our, I think twentieth year since his national championship, which would have been ninety seven, and um, Jake Long actually b- reminded me of that. Like he when he spoke, he was talking about you know being on time, and I've always been this guy that's like on time. Like I I hate people that are late. Let let me not say that I don't hate anyone. I hate when people are late. It, it irks my nerves. Like I hate dating women that are. Just like late and have no concept of time. When my mother oh, goes places with me, like, 
just it just irks the heck out of me, man. And I forgot where I got it from, and it was it was the man Lloyd Carr. No, but Lloyd wasn't wasn't that he was not necessarily warm and cuddly, which he wasn't. But he just certain players he knew how to treat differently, if you will, to get certain things out of him. I mean, some kids come from from Texas, you know, and they come from single parent homes, and you know they come from Texas, twenty three hours away. So, you know, you can't be overly critical of them. Or if a parent, or if a kid comes from single parent home, and you know he's you know, or you as a coach, and that's why I give all coaches credit and and respect for this. The art of being able to find out what makes certain kids tick, or find out which button is too much to push on certain kids. That's an art, and I think he was very good at it because uh, he treated me differently than he treated Chris Perry. He treated Chris Perry different than he treated Chad Henney and Mike Carla. Each player kind of he figured out what worked for them, and he was tremendous at uh, pulling the best out of all of us. And then when you were at Michigan, um, I, I like the, the numbers. Like I always say a number of what, who that player was, and, and you had that affinity for number one because Anthony Carter and – uh, had number one at Michigan, and I I know I, well, I'm a big fan of Penn State football, are. and it just recently Micah Parsons is, uh, came to the school, and he wanted to wear number 11, and then he went to LeVar Arrington and LeVar, and, and asked him, like, I think he actually visited him and went to his house and said, you know, can I get wear number 11? And, and LeVar said, of course, it would be an honor for you. You're one of the greatest high school basketball football players in the country uh, to wear that, and, and it's, it's created a friendship between the two of them. So talk about your you were number 80, you wanted to wear number one, and you finally got to wear number one. And then you are critical now of how it's sort of like it's not as important now and that, it, it, that you, you're, it's not allowed. It's not, it, they don't put the importance of the numbers at Michigan like they do at like a school like Penn State with, with, with the story with LeVar Arrington and Micah Parsons. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Rich Rock kind of started, you know, but let, uh, let me take a step back. So my, you know, my father played with Anthony Carter, and all my father ever talked about was how good AC was at Michigan, how, how, you know, he was just, I think he would make up a lot of this stuff. I think a lot of stuff is myth, but I would give my dad the benefit of the doubt, man. And he just would talk about AC skill and skill level. So I just, all I heard was AC number one, AC number one. So when I got older, I wanted to go to Michigan where AC number one. So, you know, going to games, I remember the 90s, Derek Alexander, you know, Greg, you know, Greg Murphy, Tyrone Butterfield. Then you move a little further, you see Dave Terrell, who's like my big brother, so I always wanted to wear it, and it was available, and it was open. And when I went there, I was excited. Nobody else took it. The only other wide receiver that came in with me was Tim Massacourt, uh, and Tim took uh, 88. So I asked Coach, could I get one? And he said no. He said I had to earn it. And it was kind of a shock to me because I don't remember anyone else having to earn it. Now, they definitely deserve to wear it when you, you know, watch the film and you pull it up. But, you know, Dave Terrell got it as a freshman. Like what separates me from Dave Terrell? Is it because you think I don't belong here, or you know? So they, even starting early, Lloyd tested me. Uh, Lloyd put my my will, my determination, up to the test right away. And so, you know, eventually after my sophomore year, I think I had a thousand yards and ten touchdowns, and what first team all conference or second team something like that. He allowed me to wear it, so yeah, it's kind of. So now, when I remember my journey into wearing number one and, you know, what I had to do and what I had to prove, you know, Rich Rod, Rich Rodriguez comes here and is trying to give the number two a defensive back. I'm like, hell no. And then, <laughs> you know, Brady Hoke, at least with Brady Hoke, the only one he did was with Funches. Funches, I think Funches started with 87, then he moved to 19. And then Funches asked me, could he wear a one? Because he was going to make the transition, he made the transition to wide receiver his senior, his junior year. So I said, hey, you know, you've been putting in that work. You know, you you you, you can wear, it. you can go ahead. He, he knew the proper channels, but with uh, you know, Coach Harbaugh, it's kind of like it's a it's a bargaining chip, or he just give it out. He give it to a guy that's no longer even at Michigan right now. Core Crawford got it what three years, four years ago. He's no longer at Michigan. And now Ambry Thomas, who's a defensive back, is wearing it. That number one is one of those jerseys, kind of like 55 at USC. You know, it's like 11 at Penn State. Like, those guys are the leaders of the team. Those guys know what comes with those numbers. Those guys know what comes with putting that jersey on every Saturday. Like, you got to be the guy that's accountable. You got to be the guy 
that's the reason. You know, you got to be the guy that the team can look to. You got to be the guy that the coach can yell at, curse at, do whatever, and takes it in stride and, and shows you and shows show the other kids, especially the young guys, what comes next. You know, why can coach talk about that? Or you got to be the guy when coach isn't around to police the team, to coach the team, with the other captains as well. So, you know, I just want the – I just want that number to represent that. I think it always should. And that's just my two cents. I'm not the head coach. But I think when that was the mantra and when that was the plan, the number the people that were number one got the best out of the university and the university got the best out of those players. And you also endo- you actually endowed the number. So it's, I'm not saying like you own the number, but you did endow it and gave a half a million dollars to the university in order to you know to give the scholarship out for that. So it was it's it's like you do have a vested stake. You wore it. You were wore it with with tremendous honor. Uh, we're talking to Braylon Edwards, the uh, the greatest Michigan wide receiver and uh, and an NFL All Pro. Uh, but as I was saying, you and you endowed that uh, endowed the number. Right, uh, you know that's like a that's a misconception. So we just created the uh, the endowment that was kind of like the deal for the scholarship. So we gave, I mean, we gave the scholarship, we gave five hundred thousand dollars regardless. It was eighty thousand dollars a year for a football player, and then there were two separate ten thousand dollars scholarships for 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 academic. But we still gave the number to people that didn't wear it. I mean, gave the money out. The eighty thousand out for people on the team on scholarship. I think Steve Breston had it one year. I think uh, Amari Darbo had it one year. We gave the money out, so it didn't have to be a number one player. But that's what the, the scholarship was called. We kind of made it out to be around the number, if you will. Right. So, um, and then I guess this this leads us to the next question. I mean, it seems like. Uh, I mean, at most schools, there's people that are critical of the program, and, and you have been critical of Jim Harbaugh, and you've made comments about it, and, and people have now been critical of you for being critical of Jim. It's like you're not allowed. I mean, is it, it's almost like you're not allowed to criticize when, when, something is, when you have your own thoughts. I mean, we have a free country, and you're allowed to say whatever you want, and you come from, a, from all the sweat you put into Michigan. You have the right to say whatever you want to say. And clearly, when you have a game like Saturday, when Michigan gets destroyed by Wisconsin, uh, you look like you're saying the right things, and maybe people criticize you or are in the wrong. Yeah, you know, when it happened last year, it was still one of those things where people were still hopeful. I think, I think uh, Michigan fans are. I love my fans, and I love Michigan. I love, yeah, I love everything about Michigan. I think our fans are delusional a lot of times, and they don't want to admit the truth. And plus, no one was saying it, so it came out of a place where. The first one through the door is always going. He's always going to catch the fire. The first one through the door is always going to catch the fire, and that's what happened last year, especially kind of surrounding how it happened. You know, that was a that was let's just say it was a long night. Right? It was a long night with some alums. You know how those parties get. So that kind of added to it. Added to it all. Fast forward to now, you know, I make some comments before it was constant game because I was doing the book presser tour in New York, and I just talk about, you know, Michigan being light years behind Ohio State. Obviously, that, that's not going to go well with the Michigan fans. And then the game happens on Wisconsin, and everything that I've been saying for the past year, Charles Woodson now says he's embarrassed and now it's okay, and I get it. You know, Chuck's Mr. Heisman. He's my big brother. And he, the way in which he did it was very, very passionate, very classy. I get that. But at the end of the day, we said the same thing. And if it if it took for him to have to say it to for people to understand it or the way in which he did it, I'm all for it. I don't mind, you know, the last the last year. But, you know, moving forward, it doesn't matter who said it, how it was said, it was said and it's true. We got and it we gotta get to the, the heart of the matter. And it may and it may not be horrible because the same has been the same has been the way for Rich Rod, Brady Hulk, et cetera. We got to do something about offense. Like that's what's killing us. That's what's killing us in the in the uh, in the big in the grand scheme of things. When you look at the the Clemsons, the Alabamas, uh, the LSU's, kind of sort of the Georgias, the Oklahomas, the Ohio States, defense obviously great defensive players. Each of those schools. It's the offense is where we're lacking. When you look at the offense, you're looking at players that are going to be up for the Heisman at the quarterback position, possibly the running back position. They're definitely going to be all-conference, probably all-American. You're going to have wide receivers that are going in the first round, no later than two, 
You got left tackles, right tackles, guards. Even Notre Dame, you can add Notre Dame to the equation. You got guys that are going to be going in their first round, guys that are that are playmakers. They're explosive. They're game changing. Every year with a high, every year with Michigan, we have to ask who's the quarterback, who's going to be the quarterback. The last time we had a consistent quarterback in Michigan was Chad Henne. The last time we had explosive, and that was 2008. Last time we had an explosive player at Michigan, that was Denard Robinson. And that was 2012. So, you know, I'm getting tired of asking this question. And you look at last year, Shea Patterson, who's not the answer, however, he had a statistically solid year last year. Coming in this year, what's the question again? Is it going to be Shea Patterson? Is it Dylan McCaffrey? Is it Joe Milton? So I'm not trying to beat a dead drum, and I'm not trying to kick Michigan while they're down. I'm telling you that the deeper the deeper issue may not even be Harbaugh. It's, it's recruiting. It's, it's recruiting, and maybe that is Harbaugh, but that's the issue. Michigan, when you watch them play, they don't look like a Final Four team. No year. They look like a pretty good team. They're like that next tier. Like, will I pick them for a Final Four? No. They're that next tier. So that's what I was trying to say to stay the program is eventually you stay at that next tier, you can only do one one of two things. You can go up or you can go down. And we don't want to go down to that third tier. We've been down there before, and it's not a fun place to be. So they got to get that corrected, man. That's how you compete with the big boys is you need a quarterback that's going to be up for the Heisman or the Maxwell. You need a running back that's going to be up for the dope. You need some receivers that in in a blink of an eye can change the game. So that's so you have credibility. You, you won the Blitnikoff Award, which is given to the top wide receiver in the country. You came back for your senior year uh, to win it, and uh, so that's that's tremendous. But I guess is it is it just an is it an attitude? I mean, Harbaugh comes from an offensive background. He brought in a new offensive coordinator this year. Uh, he seemed to get Shea Patterson from Mississippi, thinking he's going to be the great quarterback. And it just still everything just doesn't seem to work. I mean, just their offense keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah, I mean, you brought Shea Patterson in, but two things. One, you brought Shea Patterson in, but you had like he was the cure the end-all, be-all when you brought him in. Like, he was just okay in Ole Miss. Yeah, he had a couple 400-yard games. He also had a couple of terrible games. So you knew at most he was just a means to an end. He was just a means to potentially sneak you a Big Ten championship, but definitely he wasn't the end-all, be-all. And so now your offense is – you know, it's still in the infancy stages, but, you know, this isn't Tulsa. No no shots fired at Tulsa. This isn't New Mexico, man. Like, you're at Michigan, so you don't get, uh, you know, this is the infancy stages, and, you know, we'll have it going next year. I think another thing, too, is a lot of the schools that win at a high level, with the exception of Oklahoma, Oklahoma, they have this good system where they just keep, they just keep bringing in transfers, <laughs> be it a JUCO transfer or be a guy that is eligible ready right away. That's their model when it works. Most of those guys bring in a five-star quarterback, four-star quarterback, and they play him right away. So he spends that freshman year, but you already have a system in play. You already have uh, receivers that are pretty good or a running back that's pretty good. So you bring him into a system where he can learn and get better. Like, you bring in Joe Milton, who's a guy that a lot of people speak highly of, I would have threw him in the fire last year. I mean, that's just that's just me speaking. I would have played Joe Milton last year. Now you have Joe Milton having one year under his belt. I don't think you'd have played any worse or any better with Joe Milton versus Shea Patterson last year because you didn't run an offense that was conducive to Shea Patterson anyway. So you basically just kind of, you know, stubbed your toe all year. I would have played Joe Milton. Now you got a guy that's a sophomore and that's ready. He's a sophomore and he's ready. He's been through the war. He's got some – some some experienced targets on the outside. I, that's just how I was done it, but you know I'm not a coach. <laughs> no, but you certainly have opinions. I'm talking to Braylon Edwards. His book, Doing It My Way, is a great book. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. I actually bought it online. So the first book I ever bought that I read online because I went to the uh, Barnes & Noble you. in L.A. and it was sold out. So I guess there's a lot of Michigan and Braylon Edwards fans out here in, in L.A. Uh, but um, uh, anyway, I, I want to switch topics for a second. One more thing is, of course, Antonio Brown's in the news. 
um, and it's the whole issue with Antonio Brown. And you have been, you know, the idea is that he's taken the, the word diva for a wide receiver at a, at a totally different level. Uh, what's your opinion of, the, of, of what's going, going on with him in, in terms of, you know, now it seems like he's almost given up $40 million in guaranteed money by uh, social media and other type of things that he's been involved in. Something, is, something isn't making him happy. And it's, it's, it's almost like he needs to speak to a therapist. Like, he's not something that I can examine. I'm not a professional. Like, just watching from the outside, like, he just needs to go talk to somebody. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, we all – technically, every human on earth needs to talk to somebody. But football players, athletes, you may need it a little more. I think he needs to sit down with somebody and just assess just assess his space right now. Just assess his space. What do you want to do? What do you see for yourself? Like, what's next? Do you really want to be done with football? What isn't making you happy? You know, why do you do the little quirky things you do? Like, it would always be easier to diagnose someone that, I don't know, gets in, <laughs> gets in the bar fights or gets DUIs. You know, it's it's almost easy to diagnose that person. Like, hey, man, stop partying so much. Or, you know, like, you know, figure it out at home, et cetera, et cetera. But with him, it's, it's quirky, weird stuff. It's almost like, hey, look at me. You know, like, or is he screaming, like, for help? You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want to be too overly therapeutic about it, but... Like, is he screaming for help or is he saying, look at me? And most of the times people say, look at me, you know, they're hurting inside. So I will almost want him to get a therapist and then try a renewed approach in, I don't know, halfway through the season, you know, or maybe even next year, like where he can just really become himself, like refocus and refine out, like, why am I playing football? Why am I here? What's my goal? What's my objective? Like, what's my mission? You know, and take some time with his family. You know, sometimes we, sometimes people need to do that. Like you don't know what's going on. Like so, I would, I would want him to get some therapy, talk to somebody, and figure it out moving forward. Because I think he's a great guy. He's a great father to his kids. You always see him on Instagram, like raising his kids, playing with his kids. Uh, for the most part, he was a good teammate until everything started blowing up in Pittsburgh. So, I think he needs to see somebody. That'd be my, uh, my expert opinion. <laughs> well, that's it's interesting. I mean, you were I, I remember reading in your book you talked about how when you once made a first down gesture after a pass and Lloyd Carr took you out of the game for making the first down gesture and you got in trouble in Michigan for your cell phone rang at a meeting and you also got to spend I think for having a pillow fight before a game. So it was a, it was definitely you have much more discipline in, in terms of back and that. Me and Chris Perry got yelled at. I didn't get suspended. That's just being a kid, though. You know, I'm yeah. The cell phone going off. I'm 18 years old. I've never had a cell phone before. I thought it was gonna vibrate, and my dad was actually calling me to try to figure out where to pick the tickets from, to pick up the tickets from. So you know, that was that. And first down, just I mean, it was just a first down. Like now, these guys are doing backflips and all kind of dances and stuff. So that's <laughs> that's very that's that's very small scale stuff compared to that guy and what they're doing now. So. <laughs> Right, right, right. And I have one, Braylon, thanks a lot for coming on. I just have one last question I've always wanted to ask. So I've, I'm involved in fantasy football. I love it. Everyone I know plays it. I mean, when you're out there playing, I mean, you have to hear that people are, like, mentioning, like, oh, you know, you only had 60 yards, you didn't have 80 yards, you didn't get the 100 on the bonus. Do you hear that noise from people, or do you hear, is it, is it just totally, you're totally oblivious to anyone talking about fantasy? I know you played a few years now bigger than ever, but even when you played, it was, you know, very, you know, important in terms of whatever. Did you, how, how did you relate to fantasy football? Fantasy football was huge for sport especially football, and and annoying at the same time. It was huge <laughs> for sport because, one, it brought a lot of women to the sport. Like now, because of fantasy, I remember when it really launched, launched in 2008 when Yahoo kind of started it. I mean, it started before that, but Yahoo kind of made it official and a big thing in 08. Like women started coming to the sport. Like different countries started coming to the sport and paying attention. Like it really took us international, and it really just took the, like, the gender base out of it, man. It just became – I mean, they couldn't play it, but – they could watch it and love it and get into it. And it was fun. It brought people to the sport. It brought more recognition than, you know, the recognition was at an all-time high. You know, now you got guys that are, you know, third string that are getting recognized and not just your Aaron Rodgers and uh, Tom Brady's. However, people are just, that's all they care about. Like, it, it really 
takes away the just the genuine love for the game or for a player or for a team or for a franchise. Now when you run into, you know, guys in the airport, it's like, hey, don't, don't run into guys in the airport after a bad game. <laughs> oh, come on, like you said, oh, man, you only have four points. It's like, hey, nice to meet you too. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? So, and women are like, so it, it's it's a gift and a curse. Like, it brought a lot of recognition to the sport and made a lot more fun for everybody to get involved. Now you have families that play fantasy together, uh, you know, uh, job, well, not jobs, but corporations, uh, businesses play fantasy football together. People play in different countries. It's a way for people to communicate. You know, I was talking to somebody from New Delhi uh, last year about fantasy sport. So it's just a way that the world can connect over sport. However, it you also better <laughs> if you play. A lot of guys play too, so just be ready for the other side of it. Don't don't have a bad game. And the bad game isn't necessarily you went out there and you fumbled four times or you missed five tackles or you could just do nothing. Like nothing <laughs> could come your way. And that's <laughs> they started you. That's your fault too. So. <laughs> well, Braylon, thanks a, thanks a lot for coming on. I, I did notice in your book that you said you like Rocky Four better than Rocky. You, your music is Rocky Four. I like Rocky Three better. But anyway, you should definitely read the book. Anybody, my listeners, I would totally suggest the book. It's a great history. Of, it's a great biography of, of how to build yourself up to be a superstar uh, football player and, and all of the ups and lows, uh, highs and lows. And uh, I really, it's, both, it's called Doing It My Way, available at Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon, every, a- Apple Books, everything like that. So, uh, Braylon, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Thank you guys for having me. Thank you so much. He's Braylon Edwards here on Iron Sports. It's the True Oldies Channel 743. I'm Mike Balsamo, and I like Rocky Four better than three also, Ira. So I guess I, I can get along with that with Braylon in that sense. Great interview, and, and that is great stuff. Once again, you can get an autograph copy at BraylonEdwards1.com. Go ahead and follow him on Twitter at Official Braylon. Ira, time just got so far away from us. Let's do a little bit of college football before we jump into the uh, NFL and everything else. And the main reason I want to talk about that is because <clears throat> you haven't been you know, here this week. People are going crazy that UCF lost um, to Pitt. And I know you, you know Pitt is near and dear to you. UCF is near and dear to me and a lot of people in South Florida. And I didn't realize how polarizing this team is, Ira. People are loving the fact that they lost. If you're a Miami fan, if you're a Gators fan, and of course the UCF fans are extremely disappointed that they got that they lost to a team in Pitt that they probably should have beat. Yeah, I mean Pitt's up twenty-one nothing in the game, uh, and then they and then UCF comes back and makes it thirty-one twenty-one. Uh, but then Pitt had that. Then the score was thirty-four twenty-eight. And Pitt drives down that field and they converted two fourth downs. And you win a game on the, quote, pit special, where they, uh, they, it was like the Philly special where the Eagles used against the Patriots, where they snapped it to the running back who passed it to the wide receiver who threw it to the quarterback for the touchdown and win it that way. But um, it, was, it was a great game to watch. And UCF, you're right, it is a polarizing because I think people are scared that UCF is getting so good and getting yeah. so much publicity. But I saw Pitt play the previous week against Penn State. Look, they hit hard. They played hard. They tackled hard. They gave Penn State a really good game. You can see a team when you, when you watch it, when you're watching in person and seeing how hard they're playing. And I was saying in this game, I think Central Florida was going to win easily because I think Pitt couldn't. It's hard to do that two weeks in a row. They just played Penn State at Penn State in a tough, hard-fought game. How are they going to go back to Pittsburgh when they're, what, 10-point, 12-point underdogs and come and win that game? But they actually pulled it out. And uh, just all Pitt, it, it, this is a big win for the Pitt program. You could see when uh, Pat Narduzzi, the coach, was in and it was just almost crying, and the players were crying. This was a big, big win. I mean, they don't even play in the same you know, conference or anything, but just Pitt needed that win, and they wanted that win, and uh, they almost had the win against Penn State, but to get the win against Central Florida, uh, I was very impressed that the team could bounce back like that. Ira, we talked about it last week, that this week was going to be uh, <laughs> kind of a lot of blowouts across the board. We didn't have many big matchups, and, of course, we saw the usual suspects just roll them. Well, it's unbelievable. Clemson, 52-10 over Charlotte. Uh, they pulled Trevor Lawrence in the middle of the second quarter. Bama, 49-7 over Southern Mississippi. Tua had five touchdowns. He's now 17-0 on the year in touchdowns interception. And his brother, who's going to be their quarterback next year, he actually got in the game to play. LSU, the number four team, won 
by 30 over Vanderbilt. Ohio State was losing 5 to nothing over Miami, Ohio, and then scored 76 straight <laughs> points. And I know that because I'm sitting at a bar, and I'm watching the game, and I'm like, is there a time we can maybe turn that up? We had all the games, had all the games on, but the sound of the Ohio State game was on. It was on the bigger screen. And then he yelled at me later when I want to see the Clemson game in, like, the second quarter. He's like, I can't believe we're watching this game because I – so, but – and then Oklahoma was off. Auburn – Auburn is another – the SEC schools now between Auburn and Florida State. Florida blew out Tennessee 34-3. Auburn beat uh, Texas A&M 28-20, but the game wasn't really as close as, as it looked like. And I wasn't that impressed watching that Auburn Texas, – Texas A&M looks terrible. And Auburn, I felt, was just not that elite type of level like the top six schools are. But the SEC now has five of the top – they have three of the top four schools and five of the top nine teams in the country. Uh, I don't think it's the most dominant I've ever seen from a conference. Um, and Cal Trask for Florida has done great. I mean, it, he's came in since Felipe Franks. And this is funny. Kyle Trask hasn't started a game since he's in, in like, 10th grade because he was behind King, the quarterback at Houston in high school, and then he's been behind Felipe Franks. So really now he's starting. He might be a pro quarterback, and the first time he plays is, is he hasn't played, I think, in, like, four years starting a, started a football game. He's taking the uh, Matt Castle route <laughs> to the pros. Um, we talked about it. The best matchup of the week was going to be Georgia-Notre Dame, and it was a pretty good one. Um, uh, one of the most expensive tickets of all time. I had friends who went down to that game. They couldn't believe the atmosphere. There, Georgia was favored by 14. Notre Dame played great. I mean, the score was 0-0 most of the first half. Then Georgia fumbles a punt. And we talk about these punting, and, these, and Georgia fumbles a punt on the 8-yard line. Notre Dame goes up 7 nothing. Uh, but then Notre Dame threw an interception in the second half. Georgia took that lead 23-10. And you thought you know, they were going to wear them down. But Notre Dame came down, scored a touchdown. And then Georgia... They're up 23-17. They have this pathetic – they really – all they do is run the ball out. And Kirby Smart called passes. They ran three plays in a minute, two incomplete passes, instead of just running this clock out. And then they gave – then another terrible punt, and they gave the ball back to uh, Notre Dame. And Notre Dame went on the 50-yard line with, a, with, a, with a, uh, like a minute to go in the game, and they weren't able to score. I mean, Georgia held them down. But I think Notre Dame – this is one of these games where they really – it might have, I don't think it cost themselves a chance for the playoffs because they went into a hostile environment, only lost by six points, looked great playing there. Uh, but, again, Georgia being undefeated, and that was important to them. It was a close game last year. But the last couple of times Notre Dame's played in these big games, they got blown out by Clemson last year in the semifinals. And four years ago I was in Miami at the Orange Bowl for the national championship game when Alabama totally blew them out. So I think Notre Dame's happy that they played in this as 14-point underdog, not only did they cover the spread, but also it was such a close game, and I think it'll help them. If they, if they run the table and this is their only loss, they're going to be in the talk for getting in the playoff again. I, I agree with you. I don't think that this loss really looks that bad on, on a team like Notre Dame, and if it did, we'd see even less big schools wanting to play teams of their caliber. Um, what are you looking forward to next week in college? I'm going to be at Penn State, Maryland Friday night, so another Friday night game. Um, they're the big game at 3:30. I mean, there's really there's nothing really that great. UVA is playing Notre Dame. Notre Dame's favored by 11, but Clemson's favored by 26 over UNC, which lost to Appalachian State this past week. Uh, to think that Appalachian State hasn't played uh, UNC in 80 years. They're in they're they're both in North Carolina, but it just shows you how far the North Carolina program has fallen and how Appalachian State is really an up and coming program. And uh, the night games, Auburn plays Mississippi State. Um, Ohio State's going to be on national television against. Nebraska, but it's really a, probably another weekday of, of, of football in terms of, I mean, Texas Tech plays Oklahoma at, at 12 o'clock on Fox, uh, but not that big, no big games. The big SEC, when these teams start playing, the SEC start playing each other. The Auburn plays Florida, uh, the Georgia plays Florida, uh, the, the Auburn, Auburn and Alabama and, and LSU and Alabama, those games are coming up, come up in the next two months. Let's uh, switch gears at 750 Iron Sports, the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, NFL Ira. Strange, strange week. We're only three weeks into the season, and already teams are topsy turvy. I mean, you took, you know, we brought up fantasy a lot with Braylon Edwards, and you know, speaking in that sense, this half a dozen quarterbacks who nobody would have even drafted that are starting games. It's been crazy, but I do have a new favorite, and it's got to be Gardner Minshew um, on the Jaguars. This guy's exciting. Tell us about what uh, what you saw this week in the NFL. I like I, we talked about Gardner Minshew because I stay up late to watch football. Like I I I love the UCLA Washington State games at two in the morning. I love this and Gardner Minshew was tremendous for Washington State. It doesn't I thought he was I, it doesn't surprise me that he's doing as well as he has. I mean I, I've I've been a huge fan. Um, I didn't I, I was surprised Daniel Jones uh, had a good game for the Giants uh, beating the Buccaneers. Uh, finally they started for Eli Manning. Uh, Mason Rudolph for the Steelers. 
I don't think looked that great, but he did complete some bats. I mean, it was sort of inconsistent. Steelers losing there. Uh, probably one of the best games was Kyle Allen uh, for Houston yep. team and, and for Cam Newton and led the Panthers over the Arizona Cardinals. So it was like a day when Luke Falk for the Jets uh, was another quarterback starting. So you have all these quarterbacks, and you know there's all these rules about protecting quarterbacks, but suddenly they're all getting hurt for different reasons, and uh, it uh, so it does pay in terms of being and these quarterbacks have got to be ready. And a guy like people made fun of uh, Minshew because he's an older quarterback. He's bounced around to different five different colleges. He's like 24, 25. And they're like, well, we can't bring someone that that old in. What's he going to be? But you know, he's ready to play. He's played a lot of games. He's he's used to this. He's he threw for a zillion yards in the Pac-12 last year. So he's ready for this. And I think that helps when you when you have to throw someone into the fire. These teams only have two quarterbacks. They're only playing with two quarterbacks. So when your starter goes down, your second uh, the second string quarterback. It's got to be ready to play. And sometimes your third string, like with the Jets, who <laughs> Luke Falk off their practice squad, uh, starting for them just after a series of unfortunate events. Ira, this was your first. There's only, uh, I think it's less than half a dozen stadiums you haven't been to in the NFL. Levi's Stadium, where the 49ers play, you got to scratch this one off your list uh, this past week. Yeah, it was great. Five minutes away, I, I flew up five minutes from the airport. You flew to, from L.A. to San Jose. Uh, it is just a tremendous stadium. It is the best I've ever been to, and it's better than Cowboy Stadium, which I thought was the best one, and also better than Giant Stadium. Now, the L.A. Stadium and the Vegas one. But 10,000 of the seats are club seats. Uh, and so when you talk about being in clubs, there's clubs everywhere, and the seats are all cushioned. It's designed in a way that, it, it, that every seat has a good view of the field. Uh, the concourses are wide. The team stores are enormous. They're like shopping malls. You can buy everything from the 49ers. And I love the fact that they have this tailgating. It's like the old-school-style Steeler tailgating, where as far as the eye can see, there's tents. They take away, there's a great American uh, music park that's there. So they have all these parking lots, and they, use the, they close the park, for the game, and they have all the uh, all the people park in the in, and so there's there's like rows and rows and rows of tents for the tailgating. Um, it's a weird stadium. It's different than all the others because all the suites are on one side, so they have like five levels of suites on that side. But on the other, it's just it's so it's interesting that way. But I. Uh, I, I went to I was in the one melon club or the melon club which was nice I've never seen a club like it I mean it was beautiful and you could go on the field and and stand on the field and, and before the the game and watch them practice and then inside they had every food option you possibly could imagine uh, and it was just great to sit there and and the seats were, were and everyone was friendly the other thing is the San Francisco fans were great I mean, they they won five Super Bowl championships the Steelers have won six but and San Francisco has that Western Pennsylvania roots because their owners did a bar are from Youngstown, so they all, so there's always been that connection between the Steelers and the 49ers. Uh, but uh, they, I felt the fans were super nice, super friendly, uh, tons of Steeler fans. I, when I went to the Patriot game, there were not many Steeler fans there, but this time there were, I would say, 20, 25,000 Steeler fans. I mean, when the Steelers did something, it was like the stadium erupted. So it was, it was really great. I loved the stadium. I loved everything about it and uh, would suggest if you have a chance. Now, it's not near San Francisco. It's like hours, an hour to two hours outside of San Francisco, depending on traffic. It's in, like, Silicon Valley area. Uh, but if you're flying into San Jose, you really almost I said it's only a few minutes from the airport, and you can just go in and out. I flew in the morning and flew out right after the game was over. Yeah, it is um, strangely situated far away from actual San Francisco, and yeah, you know how it is with the traffic there. Um, let's talk about the game itself, because this was a weird one. Obviously, Mason Rudolph's first start ever. Every time you looked up, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo and the 49ers were turning the ball over. This one could have gone, you know, it could have got out of hand early. It didn't. Uh, Minka Fitzpatrick, first appearance uh, in, in, in Pittsburgh. Uh, former Dolphins, of course, traded for a first-round pick. He had a nice interception. So the game was kind of crazy when you were watching it on TV. Right. I mean, it was the Steelers did absolutely nothing, uh, and the 49ers just kept turning the ball over. They had four turnovers in the first half. Four. I mean, this is almost like high school football game, and they were terrible. I mean, but Minka Fitzpatrick, the Steelers get criticized. They make the trade with the Dolphins. Everyone's surprised. Wait, you lose Ben Roethlisberger, and then you trade for Minka Fitzpatrick. You gave away your number one draft pick for that player. But I love it from a Steelers fan. I love it. I, wanna, I don't want to throw away a season. I want to go for it. And I thought that he would really help the defense, and, I, and he played great. He had the interception. He had the forced fumble. You could see him make a difference in the secondary. I mean, they played great. 
they played better in the first half. I mean, in the second half, I still think still is wrong with his defense, which I can't figure out. But it, at least it was better this game. But and they actually were forcing turnovers, so I got to give them credit for that. Uh, but uh, uh, but you know, the Forty the ers they had fumbles and the interceptions in the first half were terrible. And the second half, the Steelers, you thought could steal this game. Juju was quiet the whole game, but had a, he, he's perfect at catching those five-yard passes outrunning everybody. He's big, he's fast, he's strong, he has great hands. I just love him. He's tremendous. And then um, I got to give uh, uh, Rudolph credit because he had Dante Johnson, uh, the uh, rookie wide receiver, caught a really nice pass for a touchdown. Uh, the Steelers went up uh, 2017. And at the end of the game, the Niners drive down and they're about to you know, take the lead, whatever. And Jimmy Garoppolo fumbles the ball again for the fifth turnover. Uh, and then the Steelers get the ball back. And they're like, okay, the Steelers can hold this. They run this clock out. And then James Conner fumbles the ball. And uh, then they, the 49ers went in and won the game. And, and the Steelers weren't able to uh, do anything. I mean, the Steelers, again, for three days in a row, uh, seven, three games in a row, 79 yards rushing. They gave up 168 to San Francisco. I mean, the stats were terrible. 26 first downs to 11, 436 uh, total yards to 239 for the Steelers. Uh, and, but they, you know, they were benefited. Without the turnovers, I think they got destroyed in this game. But uh, Steelers are now 0-3. It was, uh, it was, I, but the one thing is, watching Jimmy Garoppolo, all those people who said that the Patriots would have been ready to keep better to keep uh, Garoppolo and get rid of Brady, I mean, it was ridiculous. Max Kellerman goes on ESPN and keeps saying that. And anybody who watches Garoppolo, there's no way he's ever going to be half the quarterback that Brady is. And, and Brady, of course, just won the Super Bowl last year. So, that, I mean, Jacoby Brissett for Indianapolis has a better chance of being a much better quarterback than I think uh, Jimmy Garoppolo has. So I, that's just watching him in person. He misses court. He's, he's not strong with the ball. Those momentous turnovers were his fault, and he makes poor decisions. I think he's going to be a nice quarterback in the NFL, but I don't see him as being a top-tier elite quarterback. And it's funny you bring up Jacoby Brissett because he just continues to look great. And I don't know what the Patriots do. They're not great at drafting skill position players, uh, line, any of that stuff, but they know how to spot quarterbacks, especially later in the draft, guys that are not necessarily coveted by other teams. 7.58, Ira on sports, not much time left. Ira, Saturday morning, we wake up and everybody sees Antonio Brown was cut by the Patriots. And you know what? Didn't really affect them at all because they are rolling, and this has got to be the favorite to win the Super Bowl. Well, I think it was, he was cut because um, I had another accusation against him about someone he had paint a mural at his house, and then he wrote a text that was sort of criticized, that, that threatened her uh, by saying, don't say these things about me, but then it was CC'd to everybody that they saw it. And so the Patriots said, wait a second, Everything that you did before we signed you is one thing, but now that you're doing things when you're with a Patriot, that's a problem. And I guess Kraft and Belichick decided uh, to cut him. And also they saved the $5 million. You're going to see here about the dispute about the $9 million that's owed him because they're saying they cut him before the money actually got guaranteed uh, after that game. So they would only owe him for one, one game. But the, the Patriots were up 30 nothing over the Jets. And I think the only thing surprising about this game was that they then took their pedals off the gas because they sort of said 30 to nothing, and then Brady goes out of the game, and they, they didn't really try to Everyone thought they'd run, the line was 22, and they thought they'd run the score up, but they didn't really try to this game. And I, I guess Belichick, I guess, was maybe nervous about the Brown, or he's trying not to get Brady hurt, or for whatever reason, uh, it was it was just that the game was a total blowout. I think one of the biggest surprises of the NFL week had to be Daniel Jones, uh, my New York Giants. The game itself, the Giants should have lost. It, it, these are not, it's not typical that uh, guys miss chip shot field goals to end games like that. But I think as a Giants fan, you have to be really encouraged with Daniel Jones. Well, especially because Saquon Barkley gets hurt. Now we see he's going to be out four to eight weeks. Uh, Daniel Jones was criticized. Everyone criticized him, criticized the Giants for picking him, criticized everything about him, and he comes up and has this game. I mean, he, he looked good in the preseason, so people were like, okay, but that's just the preseason. He comes to this game, has 336 yards passing, two touchdowns, and I was most impressed with the two rushing touchdowns. He really looked like a guy that had it. I mean, one of my friends who's a big Jet fan said that. He's like, I don't think Sam Darnold has it. But I think Daniel Jones does, and, and I, he just played great. Uh, and uh, as a Jet fan, you're, you're upset. I mean, a Giant fan, you're upset that Barkley got injured. It's thankfully, hopefully, he's going to be back on the four-week and not the eight-year, eight-week range. But maybe you have your next. Can you go to another franchise quarterback? I mean, that would be tremendous. And Sterling Shepard, I mean, who's been an enigma for the Giants, and not he looked great. I mean, he was catching passes, and, and he played ph- phenomenal. So it was a it was a good win against Tampa. And Tampa, bad loss for them. They're missing, they missed uh, two field goals, missed extra points, make those. Th- 
you can't. They're trying to make. They're trying to have a better. I mean, they're one and two. Just a bad loss for them. And Jameis Winston played a good game, and they still lost the game. It, they were up fourteen nothing. But by the time you blinked in that game, yeah, and it's crazy that they were able, to, you know, let the Giants uh, claw their way back in. But I, I do agree with your friend. There's something about Daniel Jones. He looks like he's he looks like he's ready. He looks like he's done this before, and he looks comfortable doing it. And that's something uh, to me that's very encouraging. Ira, we don't have that much we could, uh, we could talk about before we have to wrap this up. But I gotta say. I thought the Ravens looked better in Kansas City than I thought they were going to. I thought that this was going to be Casey wins by 14 and that the national media was just hyping the Ravens too much, but they didn't look that overmatched. Well, I think what you saw in this game, and this is why when everyone keeps thinking that KC is going to beat uh, Kansas City and Patrick Mahomes is the greatest quarterback of all time and all this, they're going to beat New England. New England's defense looks great. Kansas City's defense doesn't look good. And that's going to be a problem. And, and that's, I mean, they had that, they, had, they got out to a, a good lead, uh, 23-6 in the first half, but then they, gave, they, they, let, they let the Ravens back in the game. Um, look, Kansas City is explosive. McCole Hartman, I, I mean, you're going to put him and Tyree Kill, who's been out, you put them together, I mean, it, they might score whatever they want. So they might just outscore every team they play. But when the weather gets cold, when the field gets bad, all those things that could possibly happen when they play at New England, um, I think that's going to be that's the difference between New England and Kansas City is the defense. And Kansas City has got to improve this defense because they can't let a team like Baltimore just come right back in the game. And it was sort of Kansas City had this game in control, but I, give, I, I agree with you that Baltimore looked good. Now, next week we're saving up for a big game between Baltimore and Cleveland. I mean, that's that, that Dallas and New Orleans and Baltimore-Cleveland are the two big games for next week. Speaking of um, Cleveland, this will be our last one here. Uh, it was last night, Sunday night football. The Rams... They played their game, and they kept the Browns in check where they needed to. The Browns, something's not right. Something's not clicking. I don't know if it's the play calling, but I think if you're a Browns fan, even though it was against the Rams, you still have to feel a little bit underwhelmed with what you're seeing. Well, another good win for the Rams. I mean, it's a weird. The Rams didn't look good in the game. They looked inconsistent. Gurley's not running the ball. Goff doesn't look great. Uh, but the Rams' defense looks good, and that's the one thing you saw in the Super Bowl. The Rams' defense did look good. I mean, everyone's like criticizing Sean McVay and criticizing the Rams and criticizing this, but their defense is actually, that's where they have the advantage that Kansas City doesn't have. They have Aaron Darnold, who's the best defensive player in football, and they seem to have a defense that, that knows what they're doing. And, they, and as much as Mayfield was having trouble getting the ball to Beckham and Landry, you saw Rams uh, players all around them. I mean, they were playing great. The Rams played very good defense. The question, you know, everyone's now questioning the decision plays by Freddie Kitchen, the coach of Cleveland, and the, whether he should have, you know, he was down at the goal line with a first down and goal to go on the four, and he tried four passes instead of any running plays. Uh, but look, this team talked a lot, they bragged a lot. When they start to lose, you knew this was going to happen. People are going to start pointing fingers. The key is can they stay together? Can they, get to, can they recover from this? And all this talent together, it takes, it takes time. We saw with the Miami Heat. It took time for LeBron, uh, Wade, and Bosch. It took them in through the middle of the first year before they uh, got the, you know, sort of got used to playing with each other. And I think that that's what the, the Browns definitely, this next, they cannot go one and three. They've got to beat the Ravens. This is a big game next week, the Ravens versus the Browns. Uh, no, it's definitely already one of those must-see games. And we'll, uh, we'll catch it next week. Ira, um, real quick, I don't know if you saw this. So there's a gentleman who placed an 89-cent bet on a 20-team parlay. And if the Redskins win tonight, he wins $500,000. He's at 19 of 20 uh, so far on $1. Um, obviously, he should hedge that bet. But what do you like tonight, Chicago and uh, the Redskins? I, will tell you, I, have, I have to like Chicago. I, this David Montgomery, I told you I picked him in my fantasy, and um, I'm looking for a big game out of I mean, the Bears are the other enigma with this great defense and absolutely no offense. So as much as this game's a weird game with both these teams uh, with, one, you know, with one win, but they, uh, this is, this is, uh, this is I, I look for the Bears to win, but I, I'm nervous about it. <laughs> I just need Montgomery to have a good game. I, I, I really want Montgomery to have 100 yards and score a touchdown. I, I do think that uh, the Bears will roll them here, but we've got to wait to see what happens there. Baseball, Ira, season's almost over here, and we pretty much know what's going to happen. Well, as we talked about, this Dodgers, Braves, and Cardinals have won the division. I kept saying, boy, this last week's going to be great. It's going to be this wild card. You have like seven teams for two spots. It's the Brewers and Nationals. Uh, the Chicago had an epic collapse. Uh, they've lost five straight games by one run. Um, and they want to fire Joe Madden, which I don't know why. I like Joe Madden. I mean, he's Craig Kimbrell, who they brought in as one of the best closers last year, the Red Sox, 
blew two games, and uh, it just, just, I mean, weird, but it's like the Cubs have fallen out. Uh, the, Mets real, the Mets played okay at the end, but they had such a hard uh, high road to go, they, they couldn't make it. Um, but uh, it was, uh, but it's going to be, it looks like the Dodgers will play the, the winner of the Brewers and Nationals play a wild card game, and the Dodgers will play them, and the Braves will play the Cardinals in the next game. And then the American League, uh, the Yankees, and the, it's been the same thing, Yankees, Astros, and Twins. And really, that's the wild card race because the A's seem to have two games above the Indians and Rays. But it's going to come down to the final week. Indians play the White Sox and the Nationals, and the Rays play Boston, the Yankees, and Toronto. So it'll probably be between the A's and either the Indians or Toronto. Actually, three teams that don't draw well. It's three of the worst drawing teams attendance-wise. We'll try to go after that last wild card spot. And the Yankees and Astros are battling. They both have 102 wins. And who's going to have the best record uh, in, in baseball? And the Dodgers are at 100, so they're two back. But it's not going to be that great ending. It's, you know, besides the Rays and Indians, it's not going to be that ending that I thought it was going to be with the wild card races and the teams for the final week of the season. Ira, before we wrap it up, what's going on in boxing? Just real quick, uh, um, Errol Spence and Sean Porter, welterweight fight at Staples Center in L.A. this weekend. It's going to be on pay-per-view Fox Sports. It's a big fight. Both welterweight champions. Um, and uh, this is really they, these two. This is, this is a fight that people have been talking about for a number of years between these two fighting. Uh, Errol Spence is, uh, is undefeated. Porter has two losses. Uh, but they both have been probably the top of the division for a long time. Spence is favored. But I'm really looking forward to that fight on Saturday night. Ira, where are you headed this week? Penn State on Friday uh, for the Penn State Maryland game. First time I've ever been to Maryland Stadium, uh, so it'll be it'll be good. At Penn State, let's see, uh, going on the road first time, uh, and Maryland's a team that's been inconsistent, but uh, I, clearly a Friday night game in Maryland. The, the fans are going to be loud. It's, it's going to be. Let's see if Penn State can get in that mix. I mean, no one's talking about Penn State being in the playoff. Uh, the playoff race, they're sort of look outside looking in, but they're undefeated. They win the Big Ten. They beat Ohio State. Uh, they're in it. So uh, I'm excited for that game on Friday night. We are out of time. Braylon Edwards, thank you so much for uh, stopping by here on Iron Sports. He was an excellent interview on behalf of Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night, Iron Sports.